This podcast is brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art, tlc.ac.nz. So kia ora and welcome to this panel, panel discussion about copyright for artists. Um, today we're going to be um, just talking about how copyright applies to you as artists in this uh, current age where there's so much available online and how does it work within what you do as an artist and where you stand. So um, I have great pleasure in uh, having on board Courtney Jemston, Johnston, sorry, from the Dows. I've got uh, Ruth Corver who is um, heading our AV department at TLC and Matt McGregor from Creative Commons. If you could, lovely people could just uh, give us a little bit of insight about who each of you are and what you do as, um, as, as uh, people involved in copyright. My name's Matt McGregor from Creative Commons Aotearoa New Zealand. So we, um, I've got the official title of public lead, which used to mean sole employee, but there's now 1.2 of us, so it's not quite sole employee anymore. Um, it's a very grandiose title, but we advocate for um, open access and open, open licensing, primarily to publicly funded works. Um, so publicly funded copyright works, which includes educational resources, cultural resources, data sets, research, all kinds of works that public funding um, produces in New Zealand. And we also offer free legal tools for anyone to use. We offer free licenses, and license just means permission. And I'll go into some detail a wee bit later on about what exactly that means. Right, thanks Matt. Um, so I organise the audiovisual department here and we make um, all of the websites, the graphic design material and all of the student resources that mostly the distance delivery students will see but lots of you guys will access through the library as well. So we get involved with obviously needing to access and licence material as part of those resources. Um, I've also got a freelance background doing video and film production and that often involves licensing material and I've also got a bit of a background doing some research work for various museum visitor experience companies and that's involved again licensing and collecting material so I've often been at the sharp end of actually having to source material legally um, and you know that whole kind of ball of wax really. Cool, thanks Ruth. Uh, kia ora tata everyone, um, I'm Courtney Johnston, I'm the director of the Dalsat Museum. I've been working in cultural institutions for about 15 years now and copyright's been quite a steady theme throughout that work. Um, like Ruth kind of hands on early on when I was doing research contracts for books and things like that and so going to the National Library and having to clear the copyright for the images that I wanted to use and things. Um, working at the National Library where I did a lot of website development projects and particularly around putting collections online and so that was all about it's whatever I got to know about Creative Commons. That was about trying to open up the access for use and reuse of images. And now running the gallery, we're, we're thinking a lot about things like visit, visitor photography, for example. The, the world now, we all see, our, see the world through our phones and that's how we record our experiences and share them. So how do artists come along on that journey um, when it comes to their intellectual property? So, Excellent. Yeah. Yes, that's insightful already. Um, Matt, what is copyright right law on? Uh, who is it there for, <laughs> who is it protecting? Alright, we'll start with the, the easy stuff. Um, so the, on the second part of that question, copyright um, protects everyone really. So copyright is automatic um, and it, you get it as soon as you um, fix your work in some way. So if you were in the back of the room today and just doodling away and weren't really listening and were just created some small little picture and you took your pen off the page, you would have copyright over that work automatically. Um, you would also um, have that right for 50 years your entire life plus 50 years after you died. So the, the kind of basics of copyright are that, are that it um, enables you to protect your work from and restrict your work from what other people are allowed to do with it. So um, you could stop someone using your work commercially, you could stop someone, work change, someone changing your work, you could stop someone copying your work. Um, 
Copyright tends to be more restrictive than most people realise. So under the Act, we have things called fair dealing rights, um, which gives members of the public certain rights to be able to um, copy your work in certain situations and make certain limited uses of your work. Um, most people have this idea that you're allowed to copy 10% of a work without asking permission. That's not the case under the law. The law is more restrictive than most people realise, including in educational scenarios. Um, the copyright is motivated um, initially by a kind of balancing act between three uh, main parties. The first party is the artist or the creator of the work. And the second is the publisher or, or disseminator of the work. And the third is the public itself. So copyright's intended to be a balancing act between these three groups. Um, what we've found historically is that as new technologies um, enter our society, that balancing act has tended to be disrupted. So with the invention of radio, um, with television, with the VCR, and again with the internet, we've seen that kind of balancing act be disrupted, and there's been various kinds of um, crises and panicked responses to that disruption, and we're seeing it again today with the internet. Um, what this means is that um, copyright has become reformed in various ways over that time, and it's tended to got more strict. So copyrights was originally for 14 years back in the 18th century. It's got longer and longer and longer until today. It's life plus 50 years in New Zealand and life plus 70 years overseas. Um, so as an artist, what that means is that you've got some choices as to what you want done with your work. Um, and I'll talk a wee bit about what Creative Commons offers to, to give you some kind of option in between all the rights reserved and no rights reserved. We kind of give a bunch of options in the middle, um, which we call um, some rights reserved. Um, I'm not great. sure if that answered your question. No, that's great. Good information. Yeah, Ruth, what kind of uh, copyright issues have you come across um, while, whilst working at the Learning Connection? Um, many and varied. I guess they sort of come from a few different directions. We get a lot of questions from students around, I suppose, how you guys can use material in your work and on your work. Um, so there is, I think we're talking about fair dealing rights. So there's a thing in the Copyright Act that allows for fair use for study, criticism and review. So that means that as a student, when you're creating your work, there is, um, you guys actually have rights and are able to make copies of material as part of, part of your study. Um, that really doesn't mean you can go and make a copy of an artwork and then sell it just because you're a student. So you do need to sort of be aware of the limitations and it's kind of, I think, really really designed for people to be able to do research, to put images in their sort of theses, that, that, that kind of thing, I suppose. So we sort of suggest to students and to you guys really that you can, you can make use of copying as part of creating work and as part of research, but you, know, you do ultimately need to actually kind of develop your own original material if you're gonna go out into the world beyond that. Um, we also run into issues when we're creating resources for students, so um, that's why there aren't a lot of art history resources that we've created, because you know, we, we would need to then go and get permission from hundreds and hundreds of artists to be able to create resources that we put into our videos. So um, yeah, it is, it's many and very, even things like licensing music, so if we have music on our videos we need to um, get the rights for that, we need to ask permission um, for the people that we film. Um, that's an interesting one in an educational institution because staff and students of an educational institution um, are exempt from the performers' rights section of the Copyright Act, which means we can film and videotape you while you're here um, learning. Um, but as students, you can't do that to each other, and I think there's a policy around that. So if you guys are wanting to film and take photographs, I think we have a policy around um, getting permission from other people that you guys go and take photographs of. So again, it's, yeah, that, that's another part, I suppose, that does pop up is the releases, you know. So we've all got um, a release form here. It's a good example, actually. So we'll, we'll all be signing 
basically permission for us to be recorded and put up online essentially. And that's something that especially the photographers and the filmmakers amongst you probably should be aware of. If you take a picture of someone without their permission, that could become an issue for you later on down the track. Yeah, cool. Because I do notice when people first start their journeys at TLC, they might go for more of a copying aspect until maybe they become much more aware of finding their own source imagery. It seems to be a bit of a natural progression of awareness, but yeah. so well, not, well, not for everybody, but well, for a lot. Research and working through and like understanding how somebody else has done something mm. is certainly really a big part of a learning process. Mm. And I think there is sort of allowance under the Copyright Act for that. And I think you just need to recognise the point where you... Um, you need to move on from that, and, and that point I think very much is, you know, when you start to sell work, put it out publicly, you know, and moving into that kind of space, really. I think we had an example of that happening, the, the student exhibition, would it yeah, be worth talking about that? So, um, I think there was three paintings that were in the exhibition, and uh, they were, I think, after another artist, but the particular person who created them, I don't think signed them or priced them as her way of saying, um, like, it's not my work. Is there anything else you can do as a, an artist when you're creating a work in terms of uh, maybe what you write down or the way you title a work? Is well, you, you should acknowledge. I mean, if you are using something, I think, under fair use, there should be acknowledgement of the, um, the work that you're researching, referencing or copying. So that, that would be standard practice. So, you know, if you're writing an essay, for example, you're putting in images of work, you'd always put references about where that, that work kind of came from and, and acknowledge that. It's, it, as part of your, um, your study and um, your assessment, it is a requirement that you do actually acknowledge any research material that isn't um, original work. So if you are actually, you know, doing tests that are like copies of, you know, an old master or you know, a Monet, or for example, to understand how the paint works, then you should actually be acknowledging to your mentor that that work is not your original work, but instead uh, paint studies, for example, of another artist's work, because we can't give you, um, you know, credit as, a, as a, that being an original work, because it's not actually your own work. So that's something to be really aware of. Mm. And I understand that that's something that a lot of tutors, um, you know, when you're doing the digital record, you actually add in notes around that yeah, sometimes. Yeah, reference. Yeah, so you always, if it's not your own original work, you should always acknowledge it mm. as part of your study and research, for sure. What about you, Courtney? Copyright issues within uh, your curating at the Dows. Ah. What comes up there? Um, oh, so much. Um, I've, uh, I haven't had a copyright problem since I got to the Dows, which is a good thing. Um, I think this is an area that's not well understood and that artists don't feel a great deal of control over. That's one of, one of the issues we as a community have to deal with. So when we work with an artist, we sign an artist agreement with them and as part of that we discuss and clear copyright with them. So we need to use images of an artist's work in our own documentation. So for example, when we bring in an artwork into the building, we condition report it, which involves taking images of it, of course, um, for insurance purposes and also so that we can monitor the condition of the work before it gets put outside of the building again. Um, we want to promote the show. So we want to use images of your work in posters and on our website and all those kind of things. We want journalists to promote the show. So we want to be able to give them images um, maybe we, we might want to do merchandise, in which case we also clear that with you. Um, we will, in most cases, show the artists all of um, everything that we're going to make before we do it. And when we've just done a, a recent um, release of gift cards, for example, based on 10 works from the collection, and we cleared that with all of the artists or their estates if the, the artist is no longer living. And we also offered all the artists a royalty. 
So if they wish to be reimbursed for it or not, or they could choose to donate the profits back to us because the profits go into collection care. The, that's all fairly well understood and quite standard. Um, there was a practice kind of 50, 60 years ago maybe where when you acquired an artwork for the collection, so we go out and we buy something and it becomes part of the collection, that you would buy the copyright as well. So you then own the physical object and you own the intellectual property. That's really uncommon now. So when we buy a work for a collection, the artist remains in control of that. So it does create, um, there, there's a lot of just bureaucratic admin that goes along with that. If you're on the outside and you want to do a book on Artist X and you have to not only talk to Artist X about it and get their agreement to do it and reproduce all of their works in this book, which is about them, which will be good for them, but then you have to go through all the institutions who hold the work because they're the ones who have got images of the work and then they have to refer back to the artist to make sure that it's okay. So it's this quite convoluted thing. And then what you'll also find is we, many of us are digitising our collections and putting them online. So that's another layer of going out and asking artists, is this okay with you? Mm. But then we're all doing that individually. So there are 500 museums in New Zealand, not all of them are working with the visual arts, of course, but you can kind of imagine an artist who is represented in a great deal of, great number of collections or is kind of written about, like this just becomes part of the administration of mm. being an artist as well. And you know, you can spend a lot of time um, because artists don't always continue being artists. You know, some people flourish for five years or 10 years and then they go away. Um, artists die. Uh, copyright becomes something that's not always clearly managed after someone's death. And so it can be very hard. You can get into this position where you can't get hold of anyone to ask them if you can use it. And one of the dangers there is that if artists, I think, don't take a proactive approach towards copyright, then they risk becoming less visible and to the point of becoming invisible. Mm. Um, and there are certain artists out there who, for example, refuse to have their artworks reproduced on websites. So there may be, you may hold their work in your collection, but you're not allowed to. So if you're ever searching online and you see little image not found, um, that usually means that that artist hasn't given copyright permission. But we're such a visual digital culture now that if you're invisible online, um, I think that's dangerous for your ongoing reputation and the ongoing interest in your work as well. So it's this fine balance between promotion and management. And then the, the last, and I'll stop in a second, but the last point I was going to make is um, the thing that we're negotiating the most at the moment is visitor photography. So people want to come in, you're enjoying your visit, you're inspired by something. Um, I do this all the time, like I get told off, at, I've been told off at museums around the country and around other countries as well, I've been asked to leave galleries because um, I just go around and I am just taking photos all the time and I'm sharing them madly and it's because I'm having a great time and I love the art and I want other people to know about that or I'm collecting ideas to take back to work um, and I do um, flout the rules occasionally and the one that really pisses me off is institutions asserting copyright over artists who are no longer in copyright. So, and that's such an interesting thing, and when I was at the National Library, that's particularly interesting. So, as Matt said, copyright 50 years after the death of the artist. So if you're talking about some of our early artists, they're well out of copyright, but museums still say no photography. Mm. And a little bit of that is about protecting, you know, there was this big thing around flash photography and the science on that is, no, no, no. 
no, 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 is my technical term for that. <laughs> um, but that really, um, that really annoys me, uh, cultural institutions asserting rights over things that they, they can't. Um, and the argument for that is always, well, what if someone takes it and puts Hitler's face on a portrait of someone's ancestor? Or someone puts it on a tea towel and then sells millions of tea towels and devalues the property. So it, it's a moral issue as well as a legal issue, um, but the morality isn't dealt with in the law, I guess. Yeah. Because I noticed that recently I was at Te Papa and um, I always remember the no sort of photo sign. And then just recently I could whip out my smartphone and take a photo of the Gretchen Albrecht. So it was mm. like, oh, there's... Uh, in fact, they've got a selfie spot now so that you can stand yeah. in front of the Gretchen Albrecht and take yeah. your selfie with it. So they've clearly cleared that with Gretchen yeah. so that it's permissible. Mm. Um, and and I'm, I'm advocating for this all the time. So it's definitely progressive, mm. but it's also... You know, we, we do 18 to 24 shows at the dust in a year, so we might deal with over 100 different artists in the collection, out of the collection, people who we know, people who we don't know. And so if we're doing a collection show and there are 30 artists in there and one of them is a copyright holdout, then we will normally put a no photography sign mm. at the door because it's just easier. Sure. So you canvassing all the artists and if, if all 30 said yes, you'd then say fine. Yeah. Yeah, and there are certain artists out there who, you know, it's just not worth having the conversation with them. Mm. So you're kind of relying on a new generation to come through, be more informed, yeah, and that's free right. things up. And it's about that communication, like you, you said, because um, I didn't know until recently, maybe a few years back, that I couldn't just necessarily save images of local artists off the net without seeking their permission. But then Facebook's opened up so many opportunities to communicate with like a, an artist like Ewan McDougall from Dunedin and give him a Facebook message and say, do you mind if I share your work in class? And he comes back and says, of course. So I think like what you're saying, it's about communication mm. and talking to people and finding out if it's all right with them. Yeah. Um, sometimes I think, I am not a lawyer and I'm not giving you legal advice and I'm just giving you my perspective. Sometimes I think copyright is a little bit about your appetite for risk as well because um, infringing copyright hasn't in New Zealand in the visual arts at least resulted in, I can think of maybe one court case maybe, the, the piece of public sculpture that ended up on a Helen Stein's t-shirt. Mm, yeah, um, but it doesn't happen and I see what I would consider to be rip-offs of artists' work quite regularly, and I think that's bad, because that's not a creative act, that's just um, commercialising things. But then working on the fringes of copyright is something that artists have done on purpose as part of their artistic practice mm. for forever, you know? You think about Duchamp working with the Mona Lisa, for example. He is making an original artwork that says something about how iconic the Mona Lisa is by defacing it and making it into a new artwork. And the, the current case in the States that's gathering all the attention is around a very well-known artist called Richard Prince, who's been making prints of photos off Instagram. So he has an Instagram account. He goes and he, puts, he finds these images that he likes. He puts a little comment on them. And then he's been printing those off as big high-quality prints and he's selling them for $90,000 US. And that is really, really um, not being particularly well received by some of the people who made those. And it, to <coughs> me, that is just pure outright copyright violation. But he's already been through one copyright round very similar to that and has come out the other side 
cleared, so it went through the, the legal process and it was seen that the, the, the intellectual effort that he applied to this made it his own work, even if there wasn't visual evidence of it being his own work. So I think um, you don't want to be discouraged from mining what is a very rich vein of artistic tradition. Um, but I think if you're going to do it, then you want to be smart. Like, don't, don't do dumb copying because you don't learn anything and the world's not a better place. Um, if you're going to do it, then do smart, creative copying that's not actually copying because you are making something new. It does kind of come down to money quite a lot. Like, it's interesting coming from a film production area where you know, you need to have contracts and licences and like I made a film two years ago and the contract pile I took to the lawyer who had to check all the contracts was about that high. Um, we had to get insurance against having not gotten all of the right stuff signed off and it's just because there's a whole lot more money involved whereas I think the reality is with the visual arts, you know, you, you copy somebody's painting or, you know, you re reinterpret it, appropriate it, whatever you know, you're not really going to be worth suing or trying to get some money out of, you know. If you look at all the big copyright cases like Pharrell Williams and the, um, the music with the Marvin Gaye estate and stuff, there's like huge amounts of money at stake and it's kind of usually where a lot of that sort of legal stuff does actually happen. If you are thinking about your risks, you know, you really should, I suppose, think about how much money is going to be involved because that's really where where the problems are going to well, run into. The National into Party it. have run into Eminem, haven't they, recently? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a great one. And man, it just sounds just like it. Music's a real hard one though with yeah, that. That's right. Yeah. Matt, can you give us a bit of a brief rundown on the six creative um, commons licences? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so license here, don't, don't be scared by the term license, it just means permission. So the licences themselves are just um, clear, legally robust ways for you to give permission for other people to use your work, if you so choose. Um, there are six licences, um, I don't have any visual aids, but what I'll do is just run through the four licence elements. So they're made up of four basic restrictions you can apply on your work. So the first is attribution, so you can require other people to give you credit as the creator of the work. Um, that's, that's the kind of standard requirement of all the licenses. The second is non-commercial, so you can stop people using your work for, um, the primary purpose cannot be private monetary compensation, and that definition turns on the use of the work and not the user. So it's not as if a non-commercial institution can do whatever they want and a commercial institution can't. It's the specific use of the work is, is um, how that's defined. Um, the third is no derivatives, which means you can stop people um, adapting your work beyond the, require, um, the um, exceptions under the Copyright Act, so, which are very strict. So you can stop people, for example, from cropping your photograph using that no derivatives requirement. And the fourth one is slightly more complicated, but that means if um, you license your work under a share-alike license, if someone else takes a bit of your work and makes an adaptation or derivative work, they also have to use the same Creative Commons license. So you're kind of requiring anyone who reuses your work to also use Creative Commons and kind of buy into the system. This is how some open source, so source software projects work, and um, this is how Wikipedia works. So if you take 10 articles from Wikipedia and make a book and adapt some of them, you would have to relicense that book under a Creative Commons license, the same one that Wikipedia uses. And those are the four licenses, and you can kind of mix and match to create, um, so, so those are the four license elements, and you can create six licenses from those four elements. Um, they all come with a human readable summary, so humans can read them. Um, they also come with a lawyer readable summary for those, those lawyers out there to read. Um, 
which ensures that anyone who, who has your license will be able to understand what you're licensing. But it also means if it ever does go to court, which as Courtney said is very, very rare because it's very expensive, but if it ever does go to court, it'll be held up as a legally robust document. The reason why you should do this and not just put it in an email is because lawyers are, are profoundly pessimistic people and they take into account things that you as an ordinary human wouldn't take into account, like liability, for example. So. A teacher creating a science experiment could put that, give that ex science experiment to other teachers. Um, if they didn't put something about liability in the email when they shared it, if another teacher blew up the classroom, they could potentially come back to that original teacher. Under the Creative Commons license, there'll be an exception um, for warranties and um, liability. Um, other things like the Consumer Guarantees Act are not usually considered by ordinary humans when they're giving permission for other people to reuse their work. So um, these are just some of the reasons why you the licenses are a good idea. The other thing is that they're free, so you don't have to hire a lawyer um, to legally, um, to share your work in a legally robust way. Mm. So it's intended to reduce the transaction costs of sharing online, um, which is really, really important when you've got those big stacks of documents, mm. um, which essentially a lot of those documents say the same thing for every project that, that uses those licenses. You've got essentially lawyers reinventing the wheel all over the world for, um, and charging enormous amounts of money to do so. So this is intended to bypass that. Um, Mm, great. Yeah, those, are the, those are licenses. And if people want that information, they can just find that on Creative Commons um, website or? Yep, .org.nz. We've got a, got a wee five minute animated video, which we're very proud of. Um, but there's also written summaries out there as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I've actually got some propaganda in my bag I can share later yeah. about the great. licenses. Because there is that sort of common thing of, oh, I'll just go onto the net and I'll grab an image and I'll use that as a, a reference. What can people do to maybe uh, can they use the, the term Creative Commons in the Google search somehow? How can they narrow that search so it's much more um, friendly for copyright? Yeah, so the other, um, the other good thing about the licenses is that they contain um, metadata in them to make them searchable um, through Google and other search engines. So you can, do a, 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 um, you can filter your searches through Google for Creative Commons work, so anything that's been licensed under Creative Commons will come up under that search. Um, you can also go to some of the big repositories themselves, like Flickr has 450 million, I think, works under CC. And that's just not, not just amateur works, but um, they've also got great picture libraries from around the world have put their work um, up, on, up on Flickr. Um, there's a few other repositories out there as well, like Wikimedia, the Free Music Archive, um, a bunch of others. A, a good way to find all those repositories is Google CC search, and there's a kind of meta search engine there which has about 13 different big repositories. And what it does is does that advanced search for you, which can sometimes be a bit tricky. You sometimes have to click a few pages to figure it out. So CC search is a good user-friendly place to start. Some of the more progressive museums are also actively releasing high-quality TIFFs that you can take and reuse. So locally, Tapapa's taken the lead on this. So they've taken works that are out of copyright and you can go to their collections online search and search specifically for imagery that's been cleared that you can then use however you like. You can download a free file. That's the other thing that pisses off people with cultural institutions. You ask us for a reproduction of an image and we say, yeah, sure, that'll be 20 to $200 um, to manage the overheads of reproducing that image and providing it to you. Normally that money doesn't go to the artist. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, so Tapapa's doing that, and then the Rijksmuseum has taken that a step even further. So their philosophy is there are going to be hundreds of thousands of copies of the Night's Watch online, and they're going to be of very, very... I mean, you know this. When you, you Google image search, right, and then you pick high quality or you pick low quality, and then you get the shitty little thumbnail versions, and someone's taken it on their 
teeny tiny little phone and it's got this weird yellow tinge to it and it's kind of a little bit out of focus and it's just a really crappy rendition of a great artwork. So the Rijksmuseum has said, well, this is the modern day. This is how the world works now. We are going to take amazing images of the works in our collection and then we're going to put them on the internet. So at least when people go onto the internet, they see the best version and we are going to manage quality in that way. Um, and they're also actively through their website encouraging people to take these images and rework them. And they're working with artists and designers to do projects that show people how they might be able to do that. So one of their prototypes was this beautiful um, set of stick-on tattoos that were based on still life paintings, 17th century still life paintings, just the most beautiful, beautiful objects. And that was to try to actually be actively inspiring people to take pieces of cultural heritage and reuse them in their own work in creative ways because that is how creativity has worked over the ages. It's standing on the shoulders of those who come before you because our interests remain the same, but the way that we express them changes with every person that's born. Mm. Beautifully said. <laughs> I was quite impressed with that. <laughs> what about you, Ruth, in terms of what Matt said about Creative Commons? How, how has that influenced uh, your own practice or for some of the marketing materials that you've supplied for TLC? Um, so I should probably note that we've got a copyright page on the student website, oh, sorry, on the student section of the new TLC website and we're continually updating with some of the links to some of these repositories, so like Flickr Commons and um, yeah, we'll probably go in there today and maybe add a few more. So there's a lot of places where you can get resource material and yeah, I have used, um, especially even just amateur photography through Flickr for for marketing projects, for various types of resource things. We use them, um, I think some of the resources we put together if we're trying to find source imagery for students, we actually just go, we find um, material that we can use and use that because you know, there's a lot of amazing stuff that's actually out there that we can actually kind of put together and use and stuff. So it's actually been, yeah, really fantastic and useful. And it kind of means that we can actually use material, creative material that other people have made. So a lot of people share their music online and, you know, they want it used so we can use it and stuff. And I think that that's a really positive way forward as opposed to the, the attitude, I think, of hiding your work and, and, you know, there is a risk that people will copy your stuff. But if it's good stuff, your stuff's going to be better than someone who's too useless to come up with your own good idea, quite frankly. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's good to develop that attitude of sharing. And I think putting Creative Commons licenses on your work when you put it out there means you have that level of control. So instead of people sort of going, oh, well, I, I'll just use it anyway, you know, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, I want to use that, but I'll attribute it, you know, I'll link it back to that artist. I'll, I'll you know, I'll give them the credit that they deserve. And I, I think, yeah, participating in that sort of culture of sharing, I think is a really positive way forward. And it's something that we're increasingly doing because it's useful, it's great. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Yeah. And Courtney, you are also uh, a blogger for Radio New Zealand? Oh, I um, do a regular spot on well, National, National Radio, Radio um, every two weeks with Catherine Ryan on Nine to Noon. And I've been writing my own blog for longer than I choose to remember. And so um, that's a place where I have uh, on my blog probably broken copyright law over and over and over and over and over. Um, <laughs> um, knowingly, because I do know better, um, because I, ca I can't claim ignorance, but with the best will in the world, because usually 
if I'm writing about something, it's because I want to tell people to find out about it or learn about it. So that's why I do really appreciate it if I go to an artist's website and they have proactively Creative Commons licensed their work so that I can take images and talk about them. Mm. Um, and ditto when I'm putting together galleries for the radio because it, it allows me to promote your work more easily. Mm. Um, and, and that is kind of an, an environment of trust that we can work in and it also means you know if if you're doing particularly well as an artist it's less boring email to mm. deal with hi can I have a copy of this image so I can use it for this thing with that caption it's kind of like is that what you want to be spending your studio time on mm. or um, do you want to be spending your studio time on making stuff mm. seems like it could have huge benefits for you as a, a practicing artist in terms of de developing who you are and how you're being seen mm. Mm, that's huge <laughs> so yeah, I think references is something our, uh, our artists on site and distance delivery are doing all the time, Matt, and, that, and uh, the idea of what you said before about using Creative Commons is uh, really insightful and educational. Um, any other tips about, you know, for artists when um, appropriating their work um, or searching up other artists' works? Yeah, so one thing to follow up on what, what Courtney said, Digital New Zealand is a really good place to go to find New Zealand's um, open content. So Digital New Zealand is a project run out of the National Library. It's, it's not as well known as it should be. They've gone to, um, Courtney mentioned 500 small museums. They go to these small, smaller institutions that have really small digitisation projects and essentially suck up the metadata from those projects, which means you can go to one place to search the digitised content of, I think it's about 190 small institutions in New Zealand and a lot of the smaller institutions are actually starting to do what Te Papa have already done which is release their out of copyright works under really clear no known copyright statements which means you as a user don't have to go hmm this is from 1910 I'm not too sure when this guy died I can't really be sure if I can use it or not which is exactly what you have to do and it's really really difficult if you're not um, if you haven't gone through the process of clearing rights before. So that, that's one place to go to. Um, the other thing I thought I'd mention, um, another potential benefit for students in the future is that um, more and more educational resources are being released under Creative Commons licenses. Um, so textbook prices have risen 812% in the last two decades. So that's um, three times the, the rise in inflation year on year for, since 1978, I think, um, which is an enormous, which is the reason why textbooks um, can be up to two $250 for some subjects. So there's a project, international project that we're involved with to open up more of those resources to ensure that students have free access to these resources, especially when they're publicly funded in the first place. Um, so that's another thing in the, um, to watch out for in the future. We're not there yet, but hopefully the next generation of students won't have to accumulate $1,000, $1,500 in student debt every year just to buy the educational resources they need when those resources were produced by publicly funded academics. Um, yeah, but you mentioned referencing, didn't you? Yeah, but no, that's really helpful yeah. as well. Yeah, just referencing, I suppose, when exhibiting or sharing your work, because we have student exhibitions here on site, but then people mm. go beyond the walls of TLC and they start exhibiting in the public eye. Yeah, so one of the benefits of CC, beyond the legal requirements, it kind of helps set a cultural requirement for attribution because it does it standardises the requirement for attribution in the licence. So there's the legal requirement, but it also says, kind of helps produce a cultural norm of providing credit when you're reusing works online. Um, the, the legal requirements under the licence are kind of like the requirements for referencing in universities and in educational institutions like this one. Um, you've got to give the, the name, title, and any kind of copyright statement that they might have included. So 
some artworks might have more elaborate copyright statements, some might have less, but you'd have to include that statement in the attribution, and you'd also have to include a link to the work if, if it's available, if it's online, and also a reference to it being under a CC license. So people who see your copy of the work know that you're using it under a CC license and that they have the same rights that you have to reuse that work. And that's it. So it's a little bit easier than university and tertiary education kind of referencing, which can get quite elaborate, but it's um, more complicated than just writing the name of the author under the, under the work. And those, those are the legal requirements. They're not always met, but under the licenses, you have a 30-day window to make it right if you've got the attribution wrong. So if the author comes to you and says, that's not actually how I want to be credited, you don't, you, you, it's not like the license has suddenly lapsed and you, you've broken the law, it's, you've got some time to, to make it right under the, under the licenses. Mm. Great, good insight. Um, the other thing is uh, Facebook in this day and age, social media, sharing your paintings, your drawings, should you, shouldn't you, where do you what, what's your views? Um, well, I, so Vanessa and I have just been producing a short film and what usually happens when you're making a film in New Zealand is everybody keeps it as quiet as possible, they don't tell anybody about it because, you know, what if somebody finds out about, you know, something um, the plot, you know, what if somebody finds out about how it ends? And sure, there's a commercial imperative perhaps around feature films. Um, you know, you don't want somebody like tweeting, you know, what, what the um, big plot twist is. Um, but we're making a short film and it's sort of a, a, it's in our interest for as many people to see that film as possible, preferably people that want to give us lots of money to make the feature version of it. So we've put it all over Facebook. When we were shooting it, we told all of the crew to put it all over Facebook, tweet it. Like, they're our community and they're our audience. We want them to come and watch the film, you know, we want them to share it online. So I think it's, it's sort of what are the outcomes you want, and I think that there's sort of a real a big use in social media about that kind of sharing that could be really helpful. Um, there's a film talk called, um, a film writer called Ted Hope who does heaps of talks about film um, distribution and stuff and he sort of talks about using social media as a really good vehicle to help share and get your material out there and he deliberately I think has, on several occasions has cast actors who have massive Twitter followings just and then let them tweet the entire movie process because people are interested it builds an audience so when you go and put your film out there there's all these people that are interested in the film they're interested in the actor they want to know what's going on they're going to come along and pay money and I think as you as an artist I mean this these social media networks are ways for you to build an audience. And, you know, if you're creative people and you want your work out there, you want people to come and see your work. And that's about building an audience. And it is, I suppose, in a filmmaking world, it's much more of a commercial kind of imperative and you're kind of much more kind of considered around that. But I think you can be quite um, considered about that as a painter as well. You know, a visual artist, you know, you don't, um, if you want to make a living out of, being an artist, you know, you, you need people to come and buy your artwork. <laughs> it's pretty pretty simple, really. And for people to buy your artwork, you've got to create a market, you've got to create an audience, you've got to be, um, and this is a really simple, easy way to do it. Yeah, it's the sure. way that everyone does it nowadays. Yeah. Without being a complete Debbie Downer, um, it's probably, if you are um, particularly um, cautious about ownership of images of your work, because we are talking about images of your work as well, usually. It's not the work. Um, the work, the object, the entity is the thing that you are going to make your primary income from. Images of it, you are not going to make a great deal of money from unless you hit the jackpot and you make that, uh, that, that painting of the two people dancing on the beach with the butler and the maid, like, that you see in waiting rooms everywhere. Like, that guy has made a 
buttload of money off reproductions of his work and you know all power to him most people are not going to be that person but um, if if you are cautious about these things I would also look at what the terms are of the social media platform that you are sharing those images on and what claims they're making to the content that you're sharing on there because there is every chance that when you post images on there you are handing over your ownership for them to use and reuse and for example you might have seen um, the app that went around a couple of weeks ago where you could put up photos of your face and it would tell you how old you were did anyone see that or do that yeah so in the fine print of that you are giving away the image that you uploaded for them to use in their own promotional material <laughs> no one no one reads that fine yeah, the print, small print but um, yeah. you so it, it's like the three parties that you were talking about it's the artist it's the public and then there's the publisher so mm. Flickr, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it is, they are the publisher. They're carrying your content. You have given it to them. You have, by creating an account, signed up to certain terms that you probably are not aware of. Um, it's interesting. It's a fine balance, isn't it? Because I've noticed there's been a shift in some New Zealand artists that I've seen online, uh, like Dick Frizzell, a graduate from here, Freeman White, um, and various others who, who've just kind of gone, ah. Uh, Oh, go on. And they've just shared it. And it's really yeah. interesting because there are those terms and conditions, but at some point you think, well, do I disclose or do I hold, yeah, or do I just let people well, see? Well, like I said, it's your appetite for risk. Mm. It's a cost-benefit ratio that That's you're right. weighing up. And exactly. I think usually the benefit of sharing your work is far greater than the costs and it's of worth, doing so. It's worth noting, I suppose, as well, that there's not always something... There's sort of a sense sometimes that there's something insidious about those types of groups wanting to own work, but sort of from the other side. So we use a lot of student work in our publicity here at the Learning Connection, and when students enrol, we actually, in the enrolment form, there's a thing where you sign away the rights for us to be able to use images of your work in publicity. Now, we don't know how many photos we use in a single day of students' work in various places, but if we had to go and find each individual student and ask permission for each individual work we wanted to reproduce, we just wouldn't be able to actually function. So the process of actually sort of putting a blanket kind of um, a use over it that we ask everyone to sign is again it's not insidious, it's not a negative thing, it's in some ways just a really functional thing. Um, yeah, so I think it is worth sometimes just kind of thinking about that, that it might not actually be something that turns out to be negative, but you should be informed, you should absolutely be informed. Mm, for sure. What are your views on it, Matt? Um, probably somewhere in between, so yeah, that you are, you're not giving away all your rights when you your images on Facebook or places like this, so they do have certain rights to um, use their work for commercial, for advertising purposes often, and also to um, make technical derivatives of that work, so there's kind of technical reasons why they have to get rights of your work as well. Um, it's not a guarantee that they're going to use it for anything nefarious, but you've, you've opened yourself up to that possibility, um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, in this day and age, on a daily basis. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, sorry, it's just about um, objects, so as a visual artist, you know, you're taking photos of the works and putting them up, but if you're a photographer or a musician or a filmmaker, the work itself could be the things that are online, which is where things do become a little bit different and, you know, your work itself might be out there and able to be used, you know, if you put a digital version of your film online, then someone can take that and use it and pirate it. I'm sure all of you guys are up to date with Game of Thrones, um, you know. <laughs> um, that, that is a work created by somebody else that they've put online and everyone is using it. Um, so, you know, it is worth sort of thinking about what you're making because there will be different approaches you'd want to take depending on the types of media that you're creating. Yeah. 
What about, like, for some, some of our students, their commission to create something versus creating something themselves in terms of who has the rights? So, like, you do a painting and you want to do some prints of it compared to if someone's gone, actually, I want you to do me this image. Where do people stand in terms of their own copyright between those two aspects? Got to have a contract. So whenever you create work for somebody else, you should have a contract with them. Um, and that contract will outline who owns the intellectual property of the work. Um, in most cases, if I'm commissioning someone to do something, I would own the copyright, the intellectual property of the work. Um, you know, all of the resource work we create here, the Learning Connection owns the property rights, even if we, it's our creative thing where we made a documentary about something. Um, the one thing that I would suggest that you do check out, and it's become quite an issue for filmmakers and graphic designers um, in terms of portfolio, is if you're creating work for a commissioner, they've purchased the work off you, that means you can't actually put that in your portfolio, you can't put that in your show, you can't put that online. So when I'm doing freelance work, I've got a clause that I'll always put in a contract that allows me to use that work for my own promotional purposes, you know, within, uh, you know, obviously you don't want to release it before the client needs it or whatever, but, you know, you, you write in something that allows you to put it in your portfolio and to sell you as a, as a creative person, and that's a really important thing to keep an eye on. Mm. Well said. Is there any difference between our copyright laws, Matt, and overseas copyright laws? Um, yes and no. So most countries in, in the world are signatories to a thing called the Berne Convention, and I won't go into detail about what that means, but um, the upshot of that is that most um, copyright legislation across the world is fairly homogenous. There are certain minimum requirements that each country is required to meet as a signatory to the Act. Um, one is that copyright's automatic, so you don't have to register for it, so every country has to make copyright automatic. Um, they have to respect other people's, other countries' copyright as well, so your copyright in New Zealand will be enforceable in all signatories to the Berne Convention, which is just about everyone. Um, and life plus 50 years is another minimum standard. So all countries in the world share that. There are some technical differences, um, database law in the EU, um, there are term differences as well, so the US has life plus 70, a lot of countries have life plus 70, which is beyond the minimum. Um, but yeah, as I say, most, most countries do have fairly homogenous copyright law, and this is why the Creative Commons licenses work internationally as well. So we work off copyright, copyright's homogenous, so our licenses are also enforceable <coughs> um, across the world. Mm, especially with the world being so global these days, it makes sense. Yeah, just like to, I know we're getting pretty close to the end of lunch, so um, just like to open it to the floor, to our lovely panel, if you've got any questions regarding copyright, far away. This has been a really good introduction. Thanks everyone for coming along. If people wanted to find out more or more in depth about what you've been talking about, where can they go? Yeah, looking at me, um, creativecommons.org.nz is probably the best place to start and you can kind of go um, into more complicated issues from that site. We link to various other resources. Um, we've got some template policies for people using policy resources. We've got some papers. Um, various resources are on that site depending on how interested you are in going into the depths of copyright, which n not everyone is, for obvious reasons. Um, Ian <coughs> um, New Zealand ran a photographic competition and reading the fine print, they reserved the right, if you entered it, to use your photographs without having to give any um, acknowledgement. And even if you hadn't won a prize, they could still use it for their promotional material. I think that was a very cynical way of doing it. 
It's a very administrative way of doing it. So, you know, they'll, they'll be at the other end, they'll be wanting to put up images of entrance work on the website that relates to the competition. Um, if they want, you know, you've got a poor web developer, you've got a graphic designer, you've got a person doing the photoshopping, each time they need to go back, they need to contact that individual person and say, oh, excuse me, can we get you to sign this contract that our lawyer's done up? So it, a lot of times it is an administrative kind of a thing. And again, it's that being informed. If you aren't comfortable with that, do not enter. Mm -hmm. but, but also be aware that it's probably because there's sort of a team of people like us upstairs going, ah, oh, we've got all these pictures. This one looks really cool. Let's put this up. And this one looks really cool with it. Okay, cool. All right, let's wait for two weeks while we go and talk to all of these individual people and try and sort that out. I, I also read into that that maybe they could be using it for their commercial purposes, you know, not just for the competition, but they could be using it for promoting their business. Well, that'll depend on the exact wording and the, comp and the thing. And I mean, you could always contact them and ask them specifically what what they are, will be using it for. Yeah. Well, for example, that, that form that I just signed without reading the top, <laughs> like you do, says at the end, um, I give all necessary consents for the recording of my contribution to be used by the Learning Connection Limited in perpetuity throughout the world without liability or further acknowledgement to me. So I am signing all my rights away and I'm actually thinking about putting a few conditions on there in pen. Um, this is another reason why I'm really supportive of the Creative Commons movement because the, one of the things that um, Air New Zealand in that situation could have chosen to do, for example, was to say instead by entering this competition everything that you enter automatically is now being licensed under a such and such licence. So that, um, and, and that's kind of, I, I guess, a, a cultural or a moral choice again but I've worked on website projects for example where when people upload things the act of uploading it does put it underneath one of those licenses so that it can be reused under certain conditions and we always put those licenses in place because we wanted to be fair to the contributor whilst also advancing the general cause of access to information and um, for example we did a Wikipedia project over summer um, and one of the reasons that I chose to do that, it was writing um, 100 biographies of New Zealand craft artists on Wikipedia because they're not well covered there and I figured if we want to grow the availability of information about our artists online, then putting it in Wikipedia is better than putting it on our own website, for example. But one of the other appeals of that for me was the fact that it, it, it automatically goes under a licence that says it can be used over and over and over again, which I support because that information needs to be free. Mm. I just wanted to share, um, when I was looking up copyright for something that um, you hear a lot about is uh, you can use things uh, for satire or parody use. Um, when I looked into it, actually those laws aren't in every country and it wasn't, New Zealand doesn't have it, um, which was interesting. And then I contacted the, you know, the copyright holder and basically the response I got back was, please don't. Which isn't a no, but you know, it's just interesting to kind of go through that process. And there is fair, fair use for study criticism and review, and so some of those things sometimes can fit under that. Um, but again, nobody knows until it goes to court and it gets really decided ultimately, which is the bit where it gets expensive if you want to get legal advice or you take a risk, you know? Yeah, one of the problems with New Zealand copyright is that 
this is actually, it sounds like not a problem, but it is, is that not enough cases do go to court, which means that the ambiguities under the Act, such as asserting copyright over out-of-copyright works, mm -hmm. there's no clarity because the courts haven't said anything because nothing ever goes to the courts. So there's all these ambiguities in our Copyright Act and people are kind of flying blind a wee bit, especially um, heritage institutions with yeah. some of these reproduction issues. Um, but also some of the issues you raise as well could be clarified by the courts, but they're not going to be because we're such a small country and we don't have these cases all the time. Yeah, there's an example of an artist recently uh, who came in to talk, Matt Gilt, who um, paints baked bean cans and spaghetti and the longest shake in town. And before he went to put them on display and sell them, he, pro he contacted the, the companies just to make sure that he was still having that, the, the rights to be able to paint their products and sell. So he sort of tried to cover his bases. He could have been risky and just put them up and what could have happened down the track, but he decided to communicate and get the okay. So that was one example. It would be, I suppose, an argument about whether a baked bean can would be covered under the Copyright Act or whether it would be a, a trademark as well, because it's not really an artwork. Mm, that's right. Andy Warhol. I was about to say, I think we've accepted that, yeah. that yeah. paintings of cans are art. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but the can itself. Uh, Michael McCormack, uh, an artist in Island Bay, had painted someone's house and this person whose, whose house it was says, no, you can't paint my house and put it up for display in your gallery to sell it. That's my painting. So it's interesting, you know, the, the information that people you know, assume behind um, what's being painted, you know, especially when it comes to portraits as well. Permission, communication. Yeah, where, where, is, that, where is that line? <laughs> I was going to say some of, some of the more ridiculous areas of copyright and intellectual property are around the rights to reproduce the built environment. So you can go to certain um, cities in Europe and not be allowed to reproduce certain landmarks that have been there for many, many hundreds of years under local ordinances. And this is this gets into um, you more actually need written permission from Te Papa to film or photograph the outside of Te Papa. You don't, but you do. It's, yeah, very interesting. I've had to apply for that to film on the waterfront. Yeah, crazy. It's a public building. What is that? We have one more question. Um, I'm just interested. I was doing a film on Camaran, um, Mumbai, so there's a lot of people in it. I couldn't really ask everyone's permission. So what's the situation there? This is a privacy issue, not a copyright issue, but correct me if I'm wrong, but this, that doesn't apply to public spaces. So you're allowed to film people in public spaces. It's when you're in private spaces that you have to ask their permission and get their release. Is that? Yeah. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but um, there was a, a fringe case about this in America, either this year or last year. It's someone who sat in their apartment building and took photos of people in the apartment building across the road. Um, and again, not copyright, privacy. Is that okay? Is that not okay? Um, yeah, the terminology is a reasonable expectation of privacy. So someone in a fun run wouldn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, so you're probably fine. Someone at home with the windows not drawn, yeah. you probably think they do have a reasonable expectation, but the court lawyers being what they are, they're going to have to take, argue these things out. There's a case in New Zealand with the, um, the co-workers down in well, it's interesting that the film Birdman, have you guys seen the film Birdman? There's a big scene in um, Times Square where he goes outside 
they didn't actually have a budget for extras at all. So the <coughs> only people that were involved in the film were the band and a couple of the members, um, you know, all the people making the noise. So they actually filmed the whole action, used the band to create a space, and all the people in the background were in a public space and um, were their free extras. <laughs> Ways around it. One more question down the back, if we have a little bit of room. Yeah. Carrie? Um, I just had a question about, because I often get asked about sculptural work that's out in the public domain, you know, what, what happens when someone comes along and photographs that and then, you know, might turn it into a black and white image and put it out there, you know, how, how does that fit? One of the few copyright cases in New Zealand that's actually gone to court was a man in Auckland who, you know those buildings that are half buried um, up in the Auckland domain? So Helen Stein's photographed those, put them on t-shirts, sold them, he took Helen Stein's to court, Helen Stein's won because it was a public sculpture in a public space. It was reasonable to expect that people might take images of those and copy them. So yeah. You just, I guess, you build that into your price, right? If you're commissioned. <laughs> but, but like sincerely, if you're commissioned to make a public sculpture, then, and if that's the, the situation that you're working in, then you build that into your price for making the work as the potential for lost future earnings. Interesting way to look at it. Thanks heaps, Matt, Ruth and Courtney for your uh, knowledge and uh, support and um, thanks everybody for coming. This podcast was brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art, tlc.ac.nz.